You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Good evening, Lionel. Good evening, Daniel. Well, there we go. Number 13. Lucky for some, eh? Remco Evenepoel saving Quickstep Spring. You were talking about Patrick Lefebvre chasing the Quickstep riders around the Roubaix Velodrome with a rolled up newspaper. Uh, after... Not just any newspaper, Lionel. Het Newsbud, get it. <laughs> At least beyond brand with this. Yeah. Whacking uh, Eve Lampert across the back of the leg so that the the headline newsprint <laughs> is, in, is left sort of embedded on the thigh. Uh, no need for that. So he doesn't today. even have to. So he doesn't even have to write a column the following week. He can just. He can just. <laughs> they can just sell that newspaper. Yeah. Dictate it from the skin of Eve Lampard after their disappointment. But they've been empty-handed all through the spring, but not today. And of course, Lefevre was right there in the centre of the celebrations, wasn't he? At the finish line, Remco Evenepoel, a really impressive victory in Liège, Baston Liège, attacking at the top of Laridoute. And, uh, well, he had a couple of passengers briefly on the run into the finish, but held off some of the best riders in the world to win in very impressive fashion and go 93 places better than his dad, Patrick Evenepoel, who was 94th. I'm sure you knew this, Daniel in Liège-Bastogne-Liège in 1993, wow. riding for the Colstrop team. Um, but wow. there we are. Well, it was... Well, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a throwback to the halcyon days of Patrick Lefebvre's Mappe team, or when he was the manager of the Mappe team, because um, when Quickstep sort of massed at the front, or certainly Marie Van Sevenant came to the front at the bottom of La Redoute, it there were sort of shades of when Mappe used to do that when they had Paolo Bettini and Michele Bartoli in the, um, well, certainly they had Bartoli in 1999, but we hadn't seen. Uh, Liège-Bastogne-Liège decided on La Redoute for a long time, had we? A couple of decades, in fact, I think. Well, the last one really may well have been um, Bartoli in 1998. He went away with about seven riders. 1997, of course, he famously went away with Zola and Jalabert and then and then tucked them up like kippers, didn't he, um, on, the, on the finish in Anse. Indeed. Well, we're going to talk about Liège, Bastogne, Liège, both the men's and the women's races. Lizzie Banks will join me to discuss the women's race a little bit later on. But just to give you the headlines, Remco Evenepoel, the first Belgian winner of Liège, Bastogne, Liège since Philippe Gilbert in 2011. And Gilbert was riding his farewell edition of La Doyenne today. He's the local boy, of course, got a huge reception on La Redoute. His name was written all the way up the road, as it has been for many years now, and an all-Belgian top three because Quentin Hermans of Antemarché, well, he continued Antemarché's incredible spring campaign with a surprise second place in the sprint, and Wout van Aert was third. But we'll unpick this edition of Liège-Bastogne-Liège in the next part, won't we, Daniel? Yes, we will. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. 
Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for their support of the cycling podcast. They came on board as our title sponsors just about a year ago. They're coming up to the first anniversary of their support of the podcast. They came on board just before the Giro d'Italia last year, and we're very grateful to them for their continuing support. The Super Sapiens system of continuous glucose monitoring is used by elite athletes and amateurs alike to optimize fueling strategies in order to improve performance. And last year, I gave the Super Sapiens system a try, and I was quite surprised at some of the things I learned about my diet and the effect it was having on my blood sugar levels at particular times of day and after I'd eaten certain types of food. And so during the Giro, I'm going to wear the Super Sapiens sensor on my arm again and hook up to the app and I'll be sharing some of the insights as I travel around Italy enjoying all of the the lovely food I'm going to take my running shoes and go running as often as I can and I'll see how my energy levels fare during the stress and strain of a grand tour and I will be paying particular attention to my fueling strategy to get myself through a couple of weeks at the Giro. If you'd like to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Well, a very impressive win by Remco Evenepoel, Daniel, and no doubt really about the moment of the monument, but what about the other moments that contributed to the race? Well, I suppose the first significant event happened a couple of days ago when we heard that Tade Pogacar was not going to take the start because his fiancée, Erska Ziggert's mum, had passed away. Ziggert is a pro rider as well, rides for Bike Exchange, but uh, Pogacar went back to Slovenia to support her. So no defending champion on the start line. There was the usual early break, uh, group of riders three of them in the fluorescent yellow kit of bingol i thought they looked like construction workers or something got in that break there was molly tiza and virken of bingol a couple of riders from total energies Duby and auzelan a couple from lotto sudal monique and van hooker uh, bruno armorai who really was one of the men of the match today for group armor and then there was Hinsgall of Uno X and Mikkel of Kern Farmer and Plankart of Antamarche. And it was a fairly formulaic first half to Liège Baston Liège. The gap was never really much above uh, sort of five, six minutes. And then it was gradually coming down, seemingly about a minute every 10 kilometres. And then the being controlled almost, it was controlled almost single handedly by Luis Leon Sanchez for a lot of the race, wasn't it, it for Bahrain? It was indeed, yeah. And I suppose the pivotal moment was the big, big crash with around 59 kilometres to go. Uh, Julian Alaphilippe, the world champion, was down in the ditch, and there was a moment where we saw Roman Bardet of DSM helping him up. Um, the Movistar team, lots of their riders were delayed. I know Tom Pidcock was caught behind it, Balka Monomer of Trek was caught behind it and that i suppose whittled the group down uh, significantly then things started kicking off and as you say lewis leon sanchez daniel was doing a lot of work for bahrain victorious and they were instrumental in kicking things off when they Mikel lander accelerated a few times trying to force groups clear i said i said the other day that tade pogacar on this i think the second time at the murder he looked so easy he looked like he was smoking a big cuban cigar Mikel lander looked as though he was playing the harmonica um <laughs> when he it, with his repeated attacks in in that phase of the race that you mentioned Lionel I mean Mikel Lander always looks uh, always looks nonchalant sort of imperiously nonchalant whether he's attacking or getting or getting dropped and and so it was today indeed I mean by this stage the lead group was down to six riders wasn't it 
Alshalan, Virken, Doobie, Monique, Van Hooker and Armourai. Behind Wout Poles was one of the other Bahrain victorious riders to launch a bit of an attack and they went into the bottom of Laredoute with the gap down to just over a minute and it was Remco Evenepoel who went into the bottom of Laredoute in second place behind his teammate who I think was Peter Seri wasn't it? For quick step, was it? Or was it Mary Van Sevenen? Or Mary Van Sevenen. Was it? Van Sevenen. One or, one or the other. And lots of other big name riders very alert at the front. Tom Pidcock has got himself back there. Benoit Cosnefoy, Jack Haig, Wout Van Aert, all visible. And on Laredoute, Armourai went away on his own because the lead group just splintered into bits. And then Evenepoel made his move over the top. Nielsen Paulus was able to follow for a little while. Uh, everyone else was struggling to get on terms. And then Evenepoel bridged up to Ausalan, first of all. Um, Ausalan sort of hitched a ride on the Evenepoel Express, but he only had a ticket for one stop. Armourai had a ticket for maybe two or three stops, uh, but he was dropped on the bottom of the... Uh, Cote de Rochefoucauld and then Evnepoel soloed in to the finish in very impressive fashion there was a lot of toing and froing in the group behind Movistar and Bahrain Victorious were trying to chase Mike Woods did his Mike Woods style attack on that false flat after the Rochefoucauld which we've seen him do before Van Aert who'd been dropped got himself back on with powerless to that group and I think that changed the dynamic of that chase a little bit and then, as I say, when we came into the finish, Evnepoel had time to celebrate. He didn't pay too much attention to the climate change protester who was running down the finish straight in second place, I guess he was. He was wearing a Climate Justice Now t-shirt and then he turned round to make the very valid point that there will be no cycling on a dead planet. I mean, can't really condone interrupting the bike race, but um, I can certainly uh, sympathise with that message. And then came the sprint for second place. There's a kilometre zero to be done at some point, Lionel, on cycling's pitch invaders. There have been some decorous and indecorous ones over the years. The one I always remember is the, the chap in the Kelmay jer- jersey who, in the Tour de France in 2000, rode onto the route when Marco Pantani was soloing away to a victory in Courchevel. I mean, it looked for a moment as though this, um, I'm not going to say he was overweight, but um, he was he was well built. And gentleman in a Kelme jersey looked as though he was about to beat Pantani, and uh, caused well, it caused waves of panic among the commentators who who couldn't recognise him. But there there have been a few over the years, haven't there? There have indeed. Yeah, I mean this chap wasn't on a bike; uh, he was just uh, running down the finish straight. But uh, yeah, no no stopping Evenepoel though. I mean it was an impressive ride, wasn't it? And as I say, it's not been a great spring for Quickstep, but they've come good right at the uh, well at the last moment, really. Yes, Lionel, it's difficult not to see today as a pivotal moment in the career of Remco Vanderpool. I mean, this rider who has been hyped and celebrated, um, sometimes to his, his detriment a bit. He's sort of been treated and almost presented himself at times as the kind of pop idol of Belgian cycling. He sort of, people have turned their noses up at, at times at, you know, some elements of his behaviour, some elements of his story, um, you know, how precocious he, he is, both in terms of what he's achieved, but also the way he behaves but it was it was difficult not to watch today and and not be reminded for those who saw it at the time of Frank Vandenbroek in 1999 and you know Frank Vandenbroek was known as the, the bimbo d'or or the golden boy of Belgian cycling that's an, a nickname and moniker that's also been used for Vanderpool and Vandenbroek okay he he won Liège-Bastogne-Liège in 1999 with an attack on well he's he sort of coup de grace he landed on the um, Cote de Saint-Nicolas which is no longer on the route but 
that what a lot of people remember is his, his battle with Michele Bartoli on La Redoute, isn't it? And, and his attack, his, his most sort of incisive attack on La Redoute in a very similar spot where Remco, where, where Quickstep launched the Remco set today, um, right at the top, just after the very steep bit, um, on, on, a, on a bit of a, well, a, a, a gentler section, which is kind of the key well, the, the ideal place to go. And you can tell, can't you, when someone launches an attack like that, particularly knowing Remco and what, is, what his kind of superpower is, that um, he's, a, he's a guy who's won most of his races solo, and when he goes away, it's a bit like people used to say about Cancellara back in the day, that if you give him 10 metres, then you're already sort of in trouble. And so it was today, particularly, you know, knowing how these sort of Mexican standoffs develop in these groups behind. Whenever there's one rider off the front in a big race like today, um, you always get these moments where everyone starts looking at each other and and it's sort of after you, no after you. Although there were a few teams there that were well represented, Bahrain in particular, it was difficult to find that cohesion, wasn't it? To, which Which they needed to chase him down because every time they did hesitate, um, the gap went up by two, three, four, five seconds. It did. I mean, this is becoming Evenepoel's kind of signature move, though, isn't it? The long-range attack. I mean, he won the well, his first big, big race win as a pro was the the Classica San Sebastian, which he won in incredibly impressive style in 2019. I mean, let's not forget, he kind of skipped the under-23 ranks altogether, didn't he? Um, having basically completed junior cycling within five minutes of getting his first bike, it seemed. And what, one line, or oh, just to interrupt you briefly, um, in 2017, one of the first races he won was at the bottom of La Redoute, and it was the Philippe Gilbert uh, junior, ra- junior race. And, of course, today was Philippe Gilbert's 17th and final um, Liège-Bastogne-Liège. And Gilbert, of course, he went to, well, I was reading this morning, he went to school at the bottom of La Redoute, spent his whole life, uh, apart from when he's been living in Monaco. But um, he grew up certainly very close to La Redoute. Yeah, and these kind of attacks, though, from Evan Paul, I mean, he there was one in the Tour of Denmark last year, the Coppa Bernocchi in Italy. He won by a huge margin. He's done something similar in the Tour of Belgium. And like you say, Daniel, not a rider that, that can be given an inch um, or a few millimetres. You know, how many, well, how many centimetres is an inch? I've no idea. Actually, I, I can't. Two and a half. Two and a half, roughly. roughly. Yeah. Um, you can't give Evanapol two and a half centimetres or he'll take um, 1.6 kilometres. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, how much did the freedom he had on Larry do owe to the fact that Julian Alaphilippe was out of the race? I mean, he is, we think, well, certainly was on his way to hospital, so we obviously hope he is okay. But that was a nasty fall and a really big crash at a point where. The race was fast and everyone trying to move up, jostling for position as the um, climbs are approaching. Um, lots of riders off the road on both sides. And, uh, well, we saw Alaphilippe um, in a ditch next to a tree, didn't we? But how much did that free up Evenepoel and simplify Quickstep's tactics in a way? No doubt Patrick Lefebvre will dedicate a paragraph or two to that in his column this week, probably with a few knowing winks and um, and possibly a, a slightly alternative version of of events to the one we, we would have had if if the result had been different today. But yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what this does for Remco and what what it does for his status in Belgium. I and mean, I think we've all, we, we all worry for him slightly just because of his meteoric rise and because we know 
um, how sort of febrile the, the 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 atmosphere around top riders can be in Belgium and the, the hot house environment in which he's he's grown up, and, it, and in some senses, perhaps unwittingly perpetuated that with the way, as I said before, the way he's he's, um, he's conducted himself. I mean, even Philippe Gilbert gave an interview last year in L'Equipe where he alluded to this, despite being one of Remco's mentors and sort of trying his best to calm Remco down and 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 help to sort of inculcate or help to to foster sort of more more sort of composure and and a, and a kind of calm atmosphere around him. But you know we we do worry. I mean I mentioned Vandenbroek earlier. Of course it was a very different era in cycling. It was an, an era when riders had to deal with with different things. We hope at least from what they have to deal with today but of course um it was the zenith for Vandenbroeker and it was followed um pretty much immediately afterwards by the start of uh, a quite a steep decline for Vandenbroeker wasn't it because um a couple of a couple of weeks after his win in Liège um there was uh, a drug scandal that exploded and Vandenbroeker was at the center of that and and um apart from Apart from later that year in the Vuelta a España and particularly the two stages that he won, he never really rescaled the same heights. I mean, I was watching Remco today as he rode into the finish. He started celebrating the victory with 2.6 kilometers to go, which again was a sort of typical Remco kind of mannerism. Um, and I was trying to think the last time I saw a rider celebrate a victory that early. And actually one of the last times I can remember was Frank Vandenbroeker in Avila in the Vuelta a España in 1999 when he absolutely atomized um, the lead group on the on the run into Avila and he, he started celebrating with a kilometre or so to finish to the finish um, by the way Frank Vandenbroek I haven't yet read Andy McGrath's um, newly published biography about Frank Vandenbroek but I hear very good things about it and um, if you want to know more about him I would suggest that that is the, the ideal place to start yeah, just on Evenepoel, I mean, that a very big win, uh, a monument at the age that he is. I mean, that's delivering on the sort of precocious talent um, that that we all know he has. And, you know, you, you say about his kind of, uh, you know, personality and, and the confidence. But, I mean, he is, to use uh, the, the language of, of the kids, he is a baller, isn't he? I mean, he was a footballer as well. He played for the Anderlecht youth team he was captain of the youth team so you know he's probably used to being extremely good at everything that he does um just interestingly he had the Anderlecht club badge on the uh, rear stays on his bike today and Anderlecht have already tweeted to uh, congratulate the champ and I think they're about to kick off in their game against Union Saint-Gilloise this afternoon they've got a bit of catching up to do uh, in the Belgian football championship race. This is already way too much football and I, I apologise, <laughs> but there is a, a legitimate link here. And I, I just think, you know, to even just seeing the pictures of um, of Evenepoel as a younger man, um, there's, uh, Anderlecht have posted a couple of him playing in their purple and white strip and he's just got the poise of uh, someone, you know, if, if there's a footballing equivalent of being 50 seconds up the road and clear on your own ahead of the best in the world uh, he had the same poise as the footballer it seems to me from the still photos I mean impressive and I think after last year when everything was just I mean, ridiculously hyped wasn't it going into the Giro uh, with a, with nothing behind him and yet as an, almost a sort of pre-race favourite and it all unravelled obviously and there was all of the 
um, the inter-team kind of uh, clash with uh, Almeida as well, wasn't there? I mean, you know, we've definitely found out that uh, Evanapol is a world-class one-day racer. And we kind of don't need to know the question about the Grand Tours at the moment because today is more than enough, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, that question of what he is ultimately going to become is still very much open because um, we haven't seen many riders build prolific or build um, big, illustrious palmares um, by winning in this way, you know, consistently over many, many years. I mean, um, the great classics riders have all pretty much to a man um, and, and, and woman indeed, um, they've been fast finishers and Remco is, is not really a particularly fast finisher. He's won most of his races, his big races solo and he's shown limitations in, in stage races already, certainly in, in the high mountains and he, he has been a difficult guy to pigeonhole. I mean, had we had this happened three or four years ago, we would be marvelling at a 22-year-old winning Liège-Bastogne-Liège. But it's become so commonplace for riders in their very early 20s to win big races so far that that's one aspect of this that's probably being overlooked or, or slightly downplayed. Um, but it is quite remarkable, particularly... You know, when you consider the dif- the difficulty and the distance of Liège, I mean, Liège-Bastogne-Liège is always a race that I, I go down systematically. Every year I go down the, the finishing order and I look for sort of first-year pros who have been thrown in there to see how they've got on. And anyone who, who even finishes it, and let alone sort of finishes it in the top 50 positions, I always sort of say to myself, well, that's a guy who is not out out of his depth in in the world tour. That's a guy who's probably going to have a future. I mean, you're talking about a 22-year-old here who's won the race. Yeah, I mean, it really is a kind of make-or-break race, isn't it? There's plenty of riders who've been thrown in in their early years as a pro and, and uh, you know, haven't uh, haven't had a happy experience. I mean, it's uh, such a hard race. I mean, I think the problem... We made an episode, actually, didn't we, for Friends of the Podcast a few years ago, and I think we called it the problem with Liège-Bastogne-Liège. And I think what we, we struggled to really sum up um, and which I'm going to now try and sum up in a sentence is that <laughs> it's basically a sort of six hour ramp test to failure. And the problem is that the gaps between the top riders are so narrow uh, that we we basically all it tells us is that they are all incredibly close to one another in terms of ability and that it's very, very hard to sort of get away and, and stay away. And people often look at Liège-Bastogne-Liège and say, well, nothing seemed to really happen. And I just wonder today, there was, you know, it was like the sort of um, the, the old one, two. There were some very obvious set piece moments. And I wonder whether the slight tweaking of the, the last third of the course this year has made it into a better race. I mean, Daniel, you were talking before we started recording about the, the climb that they've taken out, um, which... The Côte de Forge. The Côte de Forge, which was a main road climb, really. Not terribly difficult on its own and it just sort of got in the way and didn't really add anything to the race and in fact aided chasers rather than escapers perhaps whereas Laridou is extremely difficult it's long it's steep there's the horrible bit over the top where it just doesn't really calm down and there's you know that's where the gaps really start to open up and the uh, Rochefoucauld is also extremely steep and has a very difficult section after it, particularly the the Mike Woods bit, which is uh, the kind of the, the dead concrete slabs, which are horrible to ride on. It's exposed up there as well. And I think it's 
by simplifying the course perhaps made it more appealing to um, launch something at La Redoute thinking that it that it might have a chance. Yeah, I think it's the second improvement that's been made over the last few years. I mean, I think you and I both agree that the new finish is far superior and opens the race up to lots more um, different permutations than the previous finish in Anse, which we always said it sort of invited an action replay of Amstel Gold, which was traditionally the, the weekend before, and Fleshwell on, both of which um, for, for many years finished up here on very steep climbs and Anse was, was similar. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is also supported by NordVPN, which is a virtual private network to keep you safe and secure when you're online. I actually became a NordVPN customer before they started supporting the podcast, and I did so because I realised that I was using the internet in hotel foyers and press rooms and tethering my laptop to my phone and I was just a bit concerned that these connections were not as secure as they might be and so with the NordVPN protection creating a virtual private network which keeps all of the data encrypted and safe I was just giving myself that extra layer of protection online which is important when you're traveling around using uh, internet connections that you're perhaps not 100% certain about and especially if you're doing something like logging into your online bank while you're on holiday or away for work. So all our listeners can get an exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com TCP or use the code TCP to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus one additional month free and it's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So go to nordvpn.com slash TCP. That's the initials of the cycling podcast, of course. And we'll put all of the details in the show notes too. I think a uh, happy feeling. Of course, I always try to win the races, but uh, I think uh, like last week is uh, uh, the same. I do the best uh, result possible. Uh, Remco, Remco is really strong, uh, by far the strongest. Uh, the way he stayed stay in the front was really impressive. And uh, yeah, for me, I just uh, needed everything I had to hang on on uh, Russia Foucault and uh, need to close the gap on the top again. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I put especially a lot of energy to make it a sprint for second place. And uh, yeah, it was a, a hard fight to uh, to be on the podium then. Did it make you think that maybe you have to plan to come back to try to win it because you, you're sure that you can do it? Yeah, I think uh, definitely yeah. we'll come back in the future. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to experience this race. And uh, before I thought it, I had a good option to win it. And I think also afterwards... Uh, yeah, I can say uh, if everything goes uh, in a good situation for me, I, I'm, I'm able to win this race. Do you feel like you're still suffering from uh, the effect of the COVID, uh, from the lack of training at some point here? Or you could have been stronger if there wasn't that? Oh, it's hard to say that I still uh, have the, the super top shape I had uh, a few weeks ago. But on the other hand, uh, finishing second and third in the last two monuments, it's, uh, it's a big achievement. and. Uh, Especially a few weeks ago when I caught COVID, I would never have thought that it would possibly be possible. So uh, for now, I'm happy with that. Well, who was that, Lionel? That was Wout van Aert, the Belgian champion who, well, he got sort of done on the line, didn't he? Uh, well, he did get done on the line. Third place at 
a podium finish for Van Aert, beaten by Kenton Hyamans of Antamarche in the sprint. A bit of a surprise to all, me, that, but... All Belgian podium. All Belgian, indeed, yes. But Van Aert, I mean, he complicated matters, I thought, when got back on and uh, that group just got a little bit too big for the the, the cooperation um, required to eat into um, the time gap. I mean, they did take a massive chunk out of it, didn't they, at one point? Cut it in half, but then it just all drifted out again. And it's this age-old thing of uh, um, no one wanting to... You know, sink their own chances at such a late stage in the race by doing the job of closing the door and then finding that somebody else sort of sneaks through it. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the Olympic road race, um, which Richard Carapaz won with an attack um, on the, uh, I forget the name of the climb, but the, the last major climb on the route. And, and, you know, there it was Van Aert doing a lot of the chasing. Here he actually got back on fairly late um, and it, it had been... Well, it was Alexander Vlasov and um, Jack Haig, a couple of the other Bahrain riders who were mainly trying to reel Remco back in. Back in, but I think we saw. Well, we we probably saw the legacy of some of the issues that Van Aert's had in the last few weeks with illness. Um, you know, his form probably wasn't um, absolutely at its best, and also I talked about. Remco or the other riders not being able to reel Remco in and, and that's kind of how Van Aert is, um, is is forced to go about uh, or was forced certainly to go about the chase today and it didn't quite work did it? It didn't what about the other teams though because I mean Bahrain Victorious sort of did everything except get on the podium really they had numbers they were aggressive Dylan Turns was sixth in the end, um, a decent result, very decent result after winning Flesh Wallone on Wednesday, of course. But uh, it struck me they didn't really do a great deal wrong. They were just not in position to, as I say, close the door up to Evnepoel, um in the finale. I mean, I suppose they could have been a bit more alert when Evnepoel made his move, but they'd been uh, instrumental in sort of trying to open up the race a bit earlier. Yeah, I think there was possibly a question mark about whether they could have tried something a little bit earlier. You know, they had so many cards today. They went in with a team um, of all, ostensibly all captains, all potential leaders, apart from Luis Leon Sanchez with Caruso, Paul's former winner, and Turns, Landa, Jack Haig. And, uh, you know, they, they were obviously disinclined to carry on sort of controlling the race they as we said earlier they were pretty much the only team that had done that um but i thought that possibly you know 10 or 15 kilometers earlier um someone like lander or caruso could have could have forced the other teams onto the back foot by trying to trying to get away but um they definitely took their responsibility they're a team that is is very much in form at the moment. They've got a lot of riders um, going really well, as was the case for a lot of last season. Um, I'm sure there'll be some there'll be some criticism and recriminations, um, suggestions that they could have played played things differently. I mean, Dylan turns. Uh, uh, there were points um, on the running where you know we did see the form that he showed in Fleshwell on. He he looked like the the strongest rider um, in that group at, at times, but. Very difficult against Remco today, wasn't it? Very difficult indeed. And I mean, when you look at the uh, the other teams, most of them had two riders to sort of at least share a bit of the 
um, the, the tactical thinking, but also the, the physical work. Movistar had Valverde and Enrique Mas. Uh, Bora Hansgrohe had Alexander Vlasov, who made a good stab at trying to get on the podium solo uh, behind Evenepoel, but got reeled in again. He was uh, working to good effect with Sergio Iguita. Um, Ineos had Danny Martinez and Geraint Thomas up there until very late on as well. And Israel yeah, Martinez had a couple of... Martinez had a couple of issues in the finale. Well, he, um, a number of the Ineos riders complained after the race of stomach problems. I think Carlos uh, Rodriguez pulled out early with stomach issues. Garrett Thomas said that he didn't feel great. And Danny Martinez as well. Um, Martinez' chain also dropped at a fairly crucial moment. And that could possibly have, have cost him. Yeah, uh, Israel Premier Tech, Mike Woods and Jakob Fulsang were both active and prominent and I suppose that just puts into perspective the strength of the sort of solo rides. Nielsen Paulus of EF Education Easy Post was one of the few of their riders who wasn't caught up in that big crash because he was up there and reacting to Evenepoel's initial move and stayed with him for a little while and Mark Hershey of UAE a very decent ninth place in the absence of Pogacar, of course. But I have to say, I thought Bruno Armourai was uh, one of the men of the day, a superb ride, stayed away very, very late, and managed to stay on Evenepoel's wheel for uh, a decent chunk of time, considering the amount of time he had spent in the lead group. Um, Overall, I think we've been quite critical of Liège-Bastogne-Liège in the past, but I thought it was a really good addition. There was plenty um, to uh, keep the interest going, There weren't too many sort of flat sections of the race. I don't mean in terms of uh, the profile. There's almost no flat sections of Liège-Bastogne-Liège, is there? But there were none of those sort of real lulls in the racing. Once it started going with sort of, well, 60 kilometres to go, and and it was that crash that sparked a lot of the action, really, uh, it was non-stop to the finish. Yeah, I think our big grievance with Liège-Bastogne-Liège over the last few years is that it has taken too long to warm up, and it's been sort of thin gruel until well after uh, La Redoute. But at least, I mean, for those of us who grew up um, sort of anticipating La Redoute in the same way that we do the Poggio in Milan San Remo or the Cipressa in Milan San Remo, um, it's always been a bit of a bugbear over the last few years that La Redoute has has been almost a formality that the the group has, the peloton's ridden tempo up there, nothing has really happened. So to have a decisive move go on La Redoute. Um, as I said earlier, it was a bit of a, it was a welcome trip down memory lane for a lot of us. Well, before the men's race, of course, there was the women's edition. And after this message from our supporters, Science in Sport, we'll hear from Lizzie Banks. Uh, Lizzie and I unpick the women's edition of liege Baston liege next. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fueled by science thank you very much to science in sport for supporting the cycling podcast you all know by now that you can get 25 percent off everything at scienceinsport.com as long as it's not also in conjunction with any other money off offers that science in sport are doing at any particular time but if you load up your basket and use the code siscp25 you'll get 25 percent off Go to scienceinsport.com and have a look through the whole range of energy products. There's there's drinks for before, during and after your ride, energy bars and gels, everything you need for your racing and training at scienceinsport.com. 
Why the long face, Lionel? Uh, well, I fear, Lizzie, that there's going to be very few horse-related puns in this section. Because we didn't get the triple crown, did we? No. Well, but you know what they say. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I know. Well, I think we should knock the horse-related puns on the head this week because uh, Marta Cavalli of FDJ didn't win the Amstel Flesh Wallone Liege Baston Liege Triple Crown, but Annemiek van Vluten did. And I suppose, well, she was the strongest rider, the strongest and most aggressive rider on the two most important strategic climbs. And then she time-trialed to the finish. It was five against one on that run-in. And she was, well... You cannot say anything other than the strongest and smartest rider in the race, can you? No, absolutely. And she, she almost replicated what she did in 2019, where she won the race. She attacked full gas from the bottom of La Redoute in 2019. She said, attack, commit and don't look back. And in that race, she she attacked there and then she actually went solo from there, gaining two minutes by the finish line. And so she... she she knew in this race that perhaps she wasn't going to be able to get that gap initially on La Redoute, but she would stretch the peloton out and thin it out enough that uh, an all-or-nothing attack on Côte de la Roche of Fosson was going to be the killer blow. It was a bit like a boxing match up La Redoute. Ashley Mormon Passio kind of, she uh, <laughs> pulled the first punch and then Annemiek Van Vluten tried to give the killer blow, but she didn't She didn't give that knockout blow until the Cote de la Roche of Fasson. And um, she caught up with Grace Brown, who was solo ahead of a small bunch there, went straight past her, never to be seen again. Well, actually, I say that. They could see her, but they just couldn't bring her back. <laughs> I mean, those roads from the top of the uh, La Roche of Fasson, which is, uh, well, it goes over the top and then it's really horrible, false flat, sort of concrete dead surface from my very uncomfortable memory of just riding it in the sportive they must be awful roads to chase on um but what when i say that what makes it um possible for a rider just to be out in front and hold that gap i mean it was never it was never enough to be truly out of sight and yet she wasn't really in any danger of getting caught i didn't think i mean yeah you've got that that steep climb up the Côte de la roche of faucon and it's very, very steep, you know, 12% plus. And then there's this very small, very small dip, which you go so fast down, it really, it, when it goes up again, it's almost like the continuation of one climb. And like you say, Lionel, it, it drags and it drags and it goes on forever. And you've got a strong exposed, sorry, a, an exposed section over the top where you've almost always got strong winds. And today there was a cross headwind and then into a headwind there. So continuing that effort all the way up that is absolutely exhausting. And, you know, you're trying to claw back that gap. And at the bottom of the Côte de la Roche of Faucon, I thought that actually perhaps we were going to see what we saw on the Mur de Huy earlier, earlier in the week because Annemiek had attacked and Vollering and um, Marta Cavalli were kind of, and Grace Brown actually, were just tapping away at their own pace. And I thought that maybe this kind of, you know, these accelerations in speed that Annemiek was doing would drop the riders but wouldn't rid them because I thought that that kind of time trialing of the other riders may get her back. And it, it looked like she might come back. It came to within 10 seconds. But over the top of uh, over the top of the climb, there were five riders behind. Elise Longa-Borghini, Cavalli, Vollering, Ashley Mormon-Passio and Grace Brown, who just about to manage to cling on to the others, having been away before, like I said. 
Um, but when you're the rider out in front, you have full 100% commitment to that move. You give your absolute 100% effort. You could see Anamique just swinging on her bike, getting every drop of power out of it. And when you're behind, there's always that just tiny bit of hesitation about going full gas. You know, you think you're going hard, but you're, you know, even maybe if it's 98%, that difference between going 98% and absolutely 100% that Anamique's doing is enough to, you know, to, to, to make that gap not come down. And any time that, you know, somebody comes through and there were a few turns where Elisa Longoborghini didn't take the turn, she slotted into second wheel. So any time there's a move like that, you slow down that chase and you lose that chance to win the race. And yeah, I mean, that's why she stayed away. She said in her post-race interview, she was worried about the headwind because of course having a group of five behind is much more beneficial in a headwind than being a solo rider. But you know, maybe they didn't really know who to work for. Was it Cavalli? Was it Grace Brown? Which one of them was going to commit? Grace Brown was obviously tired, having been away. Did Ashley Mormon-Passio want to work for Vollering? And even if she did, did she have the strength on the downhill being such a light rider to really bring it back? So, yeah, it, it's always a difficult situation. And um, despite it not looking like it might favour a single rider, when you've got someone with the, not only the strength of... Annemiek van Vluten, but also the conviction to make that attack work and know that that is her one and only um, race-winning move, really, and then just going going all in. Yeah, I wonder what you made of the chase because Demi Vollering made that really all-or-nothing attempt to get across onto the wheel, didn't she, on the, the, the tail end of the climb and, and nearly you know, got to within touching distance but couldn't quite get across there. That was the crucial moment, really, because I think anyone who'd have got across to Annemiek van Vluten at that point, that would have made uh, a two-person uh, race-winning move instead of a solo race-winning move. But the group behind, two riders from SD Works, as you say, Vollering and Mormon Passio, two riders from FDJ, Cavalli and Brown, and then Longo Borghini, who, as you say, did just enough to uh, ensure that SD Works and FDJ didn't sort of uh, lose full commitment to the chase um but i was wondering about the sort of makeup it was kind of almost perfect but not quite i thought for the five rider group the cooperation and the, the amount that they put into it was um pretty impressive they were working very well together swapping turns pretty much evenly but the big problem they had i thought was that mormon passio wasn't really perhaps strong enough to mount the chase on the flatter roads and Vollering obviously would have to um, keep her powder dry for the sprint finish and, and I suppose that FDJ had a similar sort of dilemma and of course those four all had the thought lurking in the back of their minds if they did all of the work and got it to within the touching distance Longo Borghini would spring the surprise so it was like you say you know even if they were almost committing everything to the chase that's just the difference between them and Van Vluten, who had committed absolutely everything to uh, riding off the front. It was fascinating tactically, I thought. I agree. It's yeah, sort of a bit of a lose-lose situation, really, isn't it? And um, what can you do? I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that if those riders had one... I think if all five riders had 100% committed to that chase, then they would have got her back. But I mean, how many times have we seen this in bike racing that there's, there's a, you know, someone just up the road and the group just doesn't commit. And it's so frustrating if you're one of those riders that does commit. And Grace Brown is definitely one of those riders that committed. I think she was probably um, the biggest, uh, 
yeah, proponent of the chase, really. And she'd obviously been away on her own for a short time. So, and she still managed to come second. So it's just that just shows just how strong that she was. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that SD Works could really have done anything different. Um, they had Marlon Reuser in, in the breakaway, uh, who was able to stay with Annemiek van Vluten when she attacked on the, on the, on Laradut. Um, and so they were then away for a little bit. Annemiek was off the front with this chasing group behind her and Marlon just sat on her wheel, occasionally came through in order to actually slow Annemiek down, a kind of a false pulling through, a very tactical move there. Um, but what else could they have done other than perhaps send someone up the road before Cote de la roche or uh, I, I, I don't really know what else they could have done or, or just committed to the chase slightly better. But, you know, we can say that about any any solo break that didn't come back with chasers behind. I mean, what's it like as a rider? Because uh, from a spectator's point of view and from the experience of covering races, there's almost like a the rider who's got away they've got away they've played their card and the the chasers you know the 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 least bad scenario is that the rider who got away wins rather than tow somebody up from your group who then springs the um you know springs something on you at the finish so there's almost like that that other kind of unspoken you know the rider up the road has made their move you know we either commit evenly to the chase or or we don't and and i suppose that's the balance that's going on every single time a rider's on the front and then pulls off and everyone's checking each other out and i just thought you know if there was a period where the cooperation looked really really good and and i thought maybe if they hold this on um hold it all together until the you know the the final run in the last two three k they might have a chance of getting her in the finish straight but um just that little bit of cooperation went out of it and again because it's a case of doing too much might well you know rebound in their faces a bit so i thought yeah it's absolutely a fascinating battle and you mentioned grace brown who'd been off the front just going into the bottom of the Cote de la Roche of Faucon. And then she had the strength to get second place in the sprint, which I thought Vollering would have had uh, sewn up. Yeah, I agree. And I think that just shows, well, it shows again the strength of the FDJ team at the moment. Um, they had Avita Music in the break who, well, actually the break was full of comeback kids today. There was Amanda Spratt coming back from um, iliac artery surgery, Leah Thomas coming back from spinal surgery, Avita Music coming back from um, knee surgery. And all those three riders did a phenomenal job. Leah Tom- Thomas, good friend of mine as well, deserves a big mention for hanging on to that break and really doing a lot of the legwork alongside Evita Music to pull back that um, mini break of Annemiek van Vluten and mini and dangerous break of Annemiek van Vluten and uh, Marlon Reuser. Um, but yeah, FDJ, I mean, they've got the numbers now. You know, when when Grace Brown was second here to Lizzie Dagnan in 2020, um, she, she was riding with Mitchelton Scott then and she really was, she was kind of on her own in terms of, having any other cards to play in that team. Whereas now FDJ do have cards to play. They've got Cavalli, they've got Grace Brown. Unfortunately, Brody Chapman, who has been exceptionally strong this spring, had uh, a mechanical and then a bike change at the bottom of La Redoute. I think perhaps she maybe dropped her chain going in there. I'm not certain, um, which took her out of contention. But actually, I wonder what would have been if if she'd been in there because she's been so strong. And even then, they're also missing Cecilia Utrup-Ludwig, who's out with COVID at the moment. So 
it shows the depth in just their squad. But I mean, Anamique at, at the end in her post-race interview, she said, winning has become harder in women's cycling. There are more contenders. I know that I'm better than ever this spring, but it's not always that that gives you the win. I had the confidence to go all out today, just two times on the Redoute and the Roche au Faucon. And when it works, that's the best. You need some guts to go from the bottom. Yeah, she did go from the bottom. I mean, laying it all down and not holding back and, and playing a sort of more tactical game, which which might well have um, made the numbers more difficult for her. Um, getting away solo, not quite the same time gap as in 2019 when she won in really impressive fashion but an important one for Van Vluten and for Movistar because I know she won Omloop Het Newsblad right at the beginning of the classic season but that's not a world tour race for the women is it and uh, well they were in danger of coming up uh, empty from this week weren't they and uh, that well that's ended the classic season on a high for Movistar and Van Vluten. I, I guess it depends yeah, what what your definition of coming up empty is. But if you actually look at her results this season, a win in Omni Pet News, Brad, Blad, second in Strada Bianca to a phenomenal Lotte Capecchi, uh, second again in Ronde van Vlaanderen to Capecchi, of course, fourth in Amstel Gold, second in La Flèche Roulon, and a win in Liège Baston Liège. And so, actually, in terms of Annemiek's history, it's not that different from how, you know, the number of wins that she's had in the spring in the past. Um, she she often she often tries these moves and sometimes they pay off and sometimes they don't and you know we often see her very very dominant in the um in the stage races but she always tries in these spring races and often only comes away with a couple of wins despite being wins despite being so so strong so um I think often people are kind of very quick to say, you know, oh, it's been a terrible spring when someone's actually been on the podium four or five times and it was all relative, isn't it? Um, you know, and and her history in this race is phenomenal as well. It's only a, a six-year-old race, of course, having started in 2017, fifth in 2017, third in 18, first in 19, a little blip with 28th in 20, second in 21 and first in 2022. So really that is a pretty phenomenal record, which I don't think, uh, I don't think we can really knock. <laughs> I wasn't knocking it, but you know, when you're a rider of that stature, top step on the podium is the one that really counts, I guess. And um, had they got to the end of this classic season without that win, I think the, the questions would have been asked. And, uh, you know, you look at back at the second places um, and, and fourth place in Amstel, as you say, um, not quite the same as getting onto the top step. But was there anything else that um, leapt out at you from today's race, Lizzie? Yeah, I mean, another thing from today was, well, it really goes back to, to Movistar and whether they would have been happy had she have not won today with their spring campaign. And I think they would have done because the way that they've been working as a team, their teamwork throughout the spring has been brilliant. Sarah Martin-Martin was up in the breakaway today and then still in that third chase group behind. Um, Arlenis Sierra took out the sprint for seventh place in the group behind um, in the group behind the first chasers. And, you know, we've seen as well, Paula Patino has been amazing for, for Movistar this spring, doing so much legwork, bringing, bringing things back. Aude Bernic has been great for Emma Norsgaard, who has also had a really good spring. And so I think even if they hadn't won today, which of course they have now, what we've seen there is just a, a huge increase in the strength and the cooperation 
and the possibilities of what that team can do going forward. And if they look at that as a whole, they have to be happy with that. Well, thank you very much for your analysis over the past two races, Lizzie. I certainly feel like I've been learning quite a lot listening to you unpick the races and the women's world tour enters a stage racing phase next month doesn't it we've got itzulia coming up in the vuelta a burgos and then before we know it, it'll be the women's tour in the united kingdom and then the giro in italy and then the first tour de france fam which starts when the tour de france finishes towards the end of july but um, hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast lizzie to talk about the women's racing but one thing i know for sure is that you'll be back with service course with tom wally and that will be on the cycling podcast feed tomorrow a sneak preview what have we got to look forward to in service course can you remember yeah, I can remember. Um, well, we've got, uh, Tom has got a brilliant interview with Dan Craven um, talking at, uh, all about his um, his new bike brand, uh, Dan from Nam, as I'm sure you will more fondly know him. But yeah, thank you for having me, Lionel. Um, it's been lovely. I knew you were an expert on women's cycling from, uh, from our trip around uh, the UK at the Women's Tour last year, of course. But uh, it's been a pleasure uh, chatting about the women's races alongside you this week. Thank you very much. Well, that's more or less it for our Liège-Baston-Liège wrap-up, Daniel. As Lizzie said there, we've got an episode of Service Course, the tech show that's not a tech show, coming this week. The Cycling Podcast Feminine will return shortly too with Orla and Rose. And this week, Daniel and I, we're taking a break from the regular podcast. There won't be another episode this week as we try to get ourselves sorted ahead of the Giro d'Italia, which starts on Friday, May the 6th. And we will be in Budapest, of course, won't we, for the Grande Partenza. And then we'll be following it to Sicily and all the way up Italy. And so next week, there will be a full Giro d'Italia preview featuring Daniel and I, and also Brian Nygaard, who will be joining our coverage again this year um, in the second half of the race. I think for the the last week and a bit, isn't it, Brian's going to be joining us. It we'll, is. We'll it overlap is. a little bit, and then you and Brian will see it through to Verona. Well, Lionel, um, Brian has already received the hallowed hotel list, um, as have you. That was mailed over to him um, a couple of days ago. So yeah. Getting yeah, ready. I've looked at that. I'm more worried about Brian getting we hold of the yeah, wine list. Yeah, we won't be passing the wine list. Yeah, no, his, <laughs> his, tastes, his tastes are a little <laughs> bit more expensive than the cycling podcast budget. So I, you're going to need to uh, keep, keep um, well, just make some choices from the sort of middle of the peloton, please, Daniel. Um, but speaking of wine, we've got an episode coming this week, haven't we? We have, Lionel. And for those who this or who are interested in wine and who have been interested in the past when we've done our... Um, well, when we've presented our Grand Tour cases, so we've been doing this for three or four years now with um, Divine Sellers of London. We have been... Do you know, Lionel, we've also been imitated, um, imitation being the highest form of flattery by another very high-profile cycling podcast. They've decided to start doing themed grand tour cases of wine and um, i'll tell you more about that in a minute anyway we are doing a giro d'italia case again this year which sort of plots um the or sort of shadows the giro d'italia route itself but, but in an onological sense um with six wines that more or less fit in with the route and yes this week i will be or we will be releasing a podcast in, in which i talk about this year's selection with greg divine of divine sellers and also a special guest 
um, will be appearing on that again. Not everyone, the podcast itself will not be um, to everyone's taste. Um, I hope the wine will be. But for those who are interested, it will be there. And it will be um, this week. It will be dropping this week. Greg, Greg Andrews, I think. Of divine cellars, Greg Andrews. <laughs> That's fine. Divine. Greg, I, just I mean, he's divine. divine. His taste in wine is he divine. Is divine. Uh, the cases of wine are always uh, exquisite. Very much looking forward to seeing what's in this year's Giro one. But talking of the Giro, and as we gear up for the Giro, one race that gets me in the mood is the Tour of the Alps, which was on this week. The scenery is very similar, isn't it? Lots of the, the riders. The fourth Grand Tour. Wow. Fourth, I mean, what an, ext- what an extraordinary route. Yeah. Well, it's supplanted... Mountains the, every day. It's supplanted the Tour of Romandy, I think, as the, the Giro warm-up race. It's that little bit further removed from it. Romandy's perhaps a little bit close. You're effectively doing um, four weeks of Grand Tour-type racing in the space of five. I suspect the riders prefer to have a, a bit of a tune-up a little bit further out but this week's race well Roman Bardet who was seventh in the Giro last year he won overall ahead of Michael Storer and Timon Aronsman so DSM first and third on the podium good week for Groupama FDJ though because Thibaut Pino won a stage and I mean that had hearts a flutter didn't it in uh, <laughs> in, in certain um, quarters Moyin Islam one of our very good friends of the podcast Thibaut Pino super fan I mean, he must have been on the edge of his seat when Pino won the stage. Well, this had um, Lionel, a lot of people very excited, a lot of people very happy, and another contingent of people asking, what is it about Thibaut Pino that gets people so excited and gets people so emotional? I mean, there, there are several reasons. I sort of, on, on the back of a fag packet, came up with a few reasons. I mean, one was beautifully summed up by um, a colleague of ours, uh, Pierre Carrier, on Le Keep Television, this clip sort of went viral the other day. It was beautifully summed up. And, and he sort of said that Pino is fluent, really, in the universal language of emotion and heartache. I mean, that's a language that most of us are more fluent in than, you, you know, euphoria and success. And um, Pino has he's articulated this so transparently, beautifully throughout his career, through great highs, like his stage win in his debut tour in 2012, to his descending yips the following year, near misses at the Giro, um, then the tour he should have won, really, in 2019, and the dark times that followed after that. Um, as Mark Maddio said a few years ago, support this rider because he's different. He'll make you cry. Sometimes you'll be sad, but he'll also lift you right up to the ceiling. His wins will taste different from the rest. Um, another aspect to it is, I think, it's the historical context. I mean, when Pino merged... Um, we were talking about a time at the beginning of the last decade when French cycling had lived not only with the pain of sort of not measuring up to its heritage in terms of results, but worse than that in their eyes, the, the injustice of trying to compete on an uneven playing field against riders who were still hooked on drugs that sort of poisoned the sport for, for two decades. And Pino was the first hint that things were changing, that um, again, in, sort of in French eyes, good would triumph over evil in the end. I think, I think there's a bit of that in there. And there's his sort of disdain for social media. He's a bit of a technological kind of Luddite. I think people enjoy that. There was a great column in, he did some columns with West France earlier this year. And probably the most memorable passages for me was when he talked about his terror, the terror that he experienced on New Year's Eve because he knew that it would be flooded with messages people were wishing him a happy new year and he was he was uh, he was in turmoil about how he would respond to these messages when he would respond to them um so i think people some people identify identify with that you know he's yearning for simple pleasures in life um you know he's a guy who 
um, enjoys the, the outdoors and nature and um, less so sort of mobile phones and technology, that kind of thing. I think that there's sort of an honesty as well. Lionel, you and, you and I will, will relate to this. In his kind of immaturity um, <laughs> is a sort of implicit acknowledgement that he's no right to get frustrated about winning bike races, which are, you know, they're only one of the more important meaningless things in our lives. Um, but he, he sort of acknowledges that you can't really negotiate with powerful emotions, sometimes immature emotions. You know, you can't really negotiate with it. If, you, if, you, if you're inclined towards petulance, it's very difficult to override that, isn't it? I mean, he knows that he shouldn't sulk at times, but he does sulk. Um, you know, I've heard other riders over the last few months and years grouse about how much he earns and say he's a sort of hypochondriac and should just get on with things. But I think he'd probably acknowledge some of that himself, but it doesn't really, it doesn't change what he feels and he's kind of, he's authentic in that regard. Um, I, I think finally, you know, it's a very potted summary of this, but I think one last rubric, maybe a sort of an aesthetic one, he kind of looks dynamic, aggressive on the bike. Um, and also in this age of obligatory helmets, he's one of the few riders whose face is kind of instantly recognisable. He's got a really distinctive sort of, Five o'clock shadow. He's you know he's a he's a handsome chap. He's very he's very expressive on the bike. And again, it's there's a kind of transparency about the way he wears his emotions quite physically. I think. Um, also, I would say that the 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 outpouring on social media there was there's a bit of sarcasm and irony about it. Would you not agree? Well, I mean, I suppose because he came so close and then it all unravelled. And when it does unravel for him, as it has done on a number of occasions in the Grand Tours, it does so spectacularly, doesn't it? I mean, that stage win in the Tour of the Alps, stage five, was his first win since the 2019 Tour de France. I mean, it's a long old drought. 1,007 days. Indeed. 1,007 days. Just, uh, I mean, just watching Bardet win overall and Pino win the stage, I did think that maybe the 2006 16 Tour de France was going to get on the phone and ask for its storylines back, but um, well, I thought, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you know that I'm a, a, a devoted Pino, Pino acolyte, don't you? Indeed, indeed. I think it's important to keep all of these things in perspective. A 114-kilometre stage of the Tour of the Alps does not make a summer. I mean, if you can put the other 3,300 kilometres together oh, in on, July, man. then fair Lionel. enough. It's coming home. It's coming home. Il se retourne au sommet. Il est de retour. Thibaut Pinot, oui. Thibaut Pinot remporte son étape. It's coming. Cycling's coming home. Ça revient. Come on, Lionel. Sing along. Come on. Sing with me. Come on, Lionel. Everyone seems to know the score. They've heard it all before. They just know. They're so sure. The Tebow's gonna blow it away, gonna throw it away, just a hipster bar day. But I remember four leaves on a shirt, Maddie still screaming, a thousand days of her. Never stop me dreaming. Come on, Lionel, some of the next bit came from a listener. Um, it's not the most poetic tribute to Richard, but it's a tribute nonetheless, so you have to sing. So many memes, so many sneers, but all those oh-so-nears weigh you down through the years. But I still hear the laughing by more, and when Daniel was bored, Lionel melting at the tour, and Francois singing four leaves on a shirt. Look, he knows he's beaming, 
A thousand days of her. <laughs> well, maybe it is coming home. After all that, maybe it is coming home, Daniel. But I mean, I I now know why we're taking a week off from the regular podcast this week. I know. I think that's. I think we've all had quite enough. We have. Good we'll, night. We'll be back for the Giro d'Italia. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.